Hello, and welcome to this segment of Two Worlds, One Country, the show on WEHC, WISC, and podcast, where we talk with guests who understand the origins of the rural-urban divide and are tackling it, are doing something about it in any of a number of creative and, and effective ways. And my guest today is a dear friend of the last about 15 years, Kimber Lanning. Kimber is the founder and the executive director of Local First Arizona, which has become and has been for quite some time now one of the most innovative and one of the most effective community-based economic development organizations in the state of Arizona, where she is, and around the United States of America. So welcome to Two Worlds, One Country, Kimber. Anthony, thank you so much for having me. It's good to be with you. Yeah, great to see you. So I want to start with a, a brief bit about your background, mostly how you got to be such an entrepreneur. When I when I think of you and think of all you've done, I just know that you have that entrepreneurial mindset and impulse in your bones. And I, I kind of want to understand how you got to that point. Sure. Um, you know, I really give a lot of credit to the way I was raised. Um, my mother was a small business owner. She had um, a Native American art business. Uh, my father, while he was drafted in, and uh, put into the Vietnam War, he was before and after that a jazz musician. Hmm. And so, um, you know, both sets of grandparents were self-employed. Uh, and today, both of my brothers are self-employed. So it just sort of runs in the family. Yeah. And I think it, you know, I opened uh, uh, my first business, uh, which is a record store, new and used record store called Stinkweeds that I've now had for 36 years. And wow. um, and I've been there. So, I've walked through it. It's a yeah, wonderful place. Yeah. Started uh, very small, worked very hard. Um, but, you know, I, I joke that this is a, a perfect example of how I got here. I, I uh, decided to leave college. I was in college to study architecture and decided to leave college uh, to open a record store called Stinkweeds when I was 19. And of course, when I came home and made the announcement, my parents my parents went, honey, that's a great idea. <laughs> so, wow. Um, a little bit of a, a different upbringing, I think, than most people realized. And my, my mother really helped me maintain perspective. You know, I'd call her whining about having a bad day and she'd say, ah, oh, Jesus, Kimber, talk to me when you've had a bad year. Um, and so she really, um, she toughened me up and, uh, and, uh, helped me, um, I think negotiate a good deal right out the gate and, uh, and, and build a great store that, that has, uh, survived through the nineties and all the Napster and everything else. And yeah, so here yeah. you still are. So that's incredible. And at 19, no less, that's, that's amazing. And you've done some other businesses as well. I mean, local first, while it's a nonprofit is, is really run like a business, but tell us before we get to local first, what are another business or two that you've started? Sure. Uh, in the late 90s, I started a, an artist performance space called Modified Arts um, in downtown Phoenix. It was in a neighborhood that had largely uh, been abandoned. There was a lot of boarded up buildings and uh, opened up a performing arts and gallery space. We had film and theater. And uh, so basically we had three to five performances a day, five to seven days a week for um, for 12 years. Um, I still have it. Yeah, we're going to be uh, 25 years old in January, and wow. um, it is 
no longer a performance art space, but it is still a gallery space in, in the same location. And I was lucky enough to work with a lot of other artists and entrepreneurs to really transform this neighborhood into one of the top 10 districts, arts districts in the country. And uh, learned a lot about uh, city planning, um, the way cities approach adaptive reuse, um, got really involved with the development advisory board with the city of Phoenix and really transformed the way they think about older buildings being vital incubator spaces for entrepreneurs. You know, this was a neighborhood that was um, largely blighted and a drain on city resources that is now driving hundreds of jobs, tax revenue, and is actually a destination for visitors. And that is a case study for entrepreneurship and how it can transform places. Yeah, I, we can't go too deeply into that, but a couple of quick follow-up questions. First of all, clarify what adaptive reuse means. Sure. Adaptive reuse is the process by which a, a new business can open up in an older building. So if you see an older blighted building, it maybe needs um, it maybe needs rezoning or it maybe needs a little bit of flexibility in order to make it occupiable. We um, we don't advocate, obviously, for life safety um, risks, but we do advocate for flexibility to say, yes, we can open up a coffee shop in that old gas station, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and, and and why that's important to placemaking and why that's important to job creation and economic development. So we need to streamline those processes to make it easier for the entrepreneur. What's the name of, yeah, that's great. Thank you. That, and that's so important and something a lot of uh, nonprofit people don't understand or don't necessarily have a comfort level with. So what's the name of that neighborhood? where the art gallery is? It's called Roosevelt Row. Yeah, Roosevelt, Roosevelt Row. Row. And mm -hmm. have you, again, in in a nutshell, have you been able to cultivate that revitalization and all that uh, rebirth of businesses, new businesses, et cetera, without falling into the trap of gentrification that so often accompanies kind of communities rebounding? Mm -hmm. No. Um, so the long story is over 25 years, we we staved it off for as long as we possibly could. We passed an arts and culture overlay that allowed more flexibility. We encouraged the activation of ground floor retail for the new housing developments that have come in. But what we didn't anticipate is with Arizona State University coming downtown, uh, it really instigated a ton of, quote unquote, redevelopment. And we started losing uh, some older buildings, but primarily um, there was a lot of um, unused land, vacant land. And a lot of that has um, really fueled the growth for apartments that are pretty expensive in the area, which we still have a good number of uh, small independently owned businesses down here, more so than most places in Phoenix. But um, many of the artists and certainly the workforce in our restaurants can't afford to live here anymore. So mm. it's it's painful. Um, and I think that I learned a lot. I think we did better than most neighborhoods. However, the truth be told, I'm still here and some of my neighbors are still here because we were able to buy our properties before they got too expensive. And mm. had we not, if we had been tenants, we would have also been displaced. Wow. Well, that's such a tough nut to crack. Let me ask you about the social change element of your work. I One of the really interesting things about you to me, one of the things that appealed to me is that you are sort of a, a take-no-prisoners, tough 
person who who does what needs to be done, um, long hours, works hard. You, you, there's much about you that is very typical for an entrepreneur, for a business person, and yet not so typical for entrepreneurs and business people. You you have a deep commitment to making the world better, to social change, social justice, et cetera. So where did that second element come in? And then how do you reconcile those two sometimes conflicting elements? Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Um, you know, I there's a, there, there's a big conversation in there about reconciliation because to me they're symbiotic. However, I've come to learn that I'm in a deep minority there. Um, to me, entrepreneurship is the great social equalizer. Entrepreneurship is an opportunity to um, create generational wealth for families. You know, to me, when you say entrepreneur, uh, you know, every small business is a family and every family counts. But there's really been a strong backlash to capitalism and this whole fundamental question of can we get to justice through capitalism? And I really think it boils down to, you know, the government saying small business is anything less than 500 employees. If we moved that number to 50, you would suddenly begin to see how important small family owned businesses are to the very ecosystem and fabric of places. And uh, and what the government has done by elevating corporations to almost human status in terms of their rights um, has just not only destroyed communities and extracted wealth from them and created the actual wealth gap, in particular, the racial wealth gap we're battling, as well as the rural urban divide. They have demonized the word entrepreneur in a way that is just fundamentally Um, change the dichotomy of what it means to be in business. If you think about it in the old days, um, you know, we used to have small shops that would extend credit. They would give you a job. They would be invested. They knew whose families were in trouble. They figured out how they could help. They were a rallying cry for the small towns where they existed. And we've lost that over time. And I believe it really is policy at the root of that transition. And so for me to answer your question. Um, I think there were two key uh, moments in my upbringing that that shaped who I am. One of them is my father doing three terms of duty in in Vietnam and the way he was treated when he came home and understanding, you know, I was born on Okinawa and how truly misguided and evil that war was, as well as how poorly our pilots were treated during that war. We lost two thirds of our pilots during that war. My father came home with all kinds of, you know, um, stress related illnesses, as well as survivor syndrome, and they were nowhere to be found. Good luck with that, you know, send him home to be a father. And, um, and so our dinner table was, um, was discussion on foreign policy. I'm the youngest kid. A lot of people, I, you know, one of my least favorite things when people go, Oh, you're the baby. You were spoiled. It's like, Oh, you don't know my family. If I wasn't able to keep up with the debate, I was just simply left out of it. Um, and so my, brothers are seven and five and a half years older than me. And, um, and there were, there were a lot of debates and a lot of difficult struggles about what that war did to my family. And 
Um, and then, so that was one is being shaped in that environment and being mm -hmm. born on an island where, you know, the military police would roll down the street every single day at the end of the day. And if they stopped in front of a house, they knew that dad wasn't coming home. Imagine living with that stress as mm -hmm. little kids mm -hmm. with faces pressed against the window, wondering every day if it was going to be your dad or your friend's dad, you know? Yep. And so that definitely shaped a piece of me. The second is that when I was in high school, my oldest brother decided to um, locate to Nicaragua during the Iran-Contra scandal mm -hmm. and um, worked for six months bringing in the coffee harvest when the typical coffee harvesters were picking up arms to fight off the Americans. So your high school kids and your women were fighting off the Americans. And my brother went to bring in that coffee harvest, which was critical to their economy. So as a result, you know, here I am in high school where my, most kids are writing reports about, you know, their car or whatever happened last weekend. And I was like the war in Nicaragua, you know, and they were like, boo, you know, who is this crazy girl? So um, so those two, I think, things really shaped my global perspective. I want to get to Local First Arizona and briefly talk about a tiny bit of the amazing work you do, but I want to try to clarify one thing here. So when you when you talked about the government saying that 500 employees or less constitute a small business, you're talking about their official designation, which I think is through SBA, the Small Business Administration. And so by the government saying 500 or less, which is actually a hell of a big business in most places, certainly rural areas, but most places, mm -hmm. They're, they're sort of conflating entrepreneurs and small business with big business and therefore giving it a kind of a black eye because there's a whole lot of harm that big businesses have done. Is that – am I getting that basically right? Oh, absolutely. Okay, cool. So let's talk a little bit about Local First. Again, that could easily be the subject of a couple of shows. So I'm going to ask you to first talk about sort of what's unique about Local First. It's – it's an economic development organization. It's a business development organization. What's unique about it? And then maybe a couple of the many things Local First does, maybe a little bit more of a focus on two things, your Fuerza Local, the, the part of it that works with Latino and Latina entrepreneurs or want to be entrepreneurs, and uh, what you're doing in rural areas. But starting mm -hmm. with kind of the big picture on Local First. Mm-hmm. So I think, um, you know, we started out in 2003, so we're celebrating 20 years, um, and we started really um, as a bi-local entity, um, and my orientation to what I will call the greater societal issues was really local versus corporate. As, mm -hmm. a, as a middle-aged white woman, I thought the main core of the issue was local versus corporate. And through my business as a record store owner, I was constantly battling that and trying to organize other small record store owners across the country to deal with everything from Walmart and Best Buy to Warner Brothers and Sony and, mm -hmm. and everything in between. And um, and so I came to the work trying to keep more money recirculating in the local economy mm -hmm. and and, rec and and putting small business at the forefront. Again, my version of small business uh, at the forefront of, of culture and identity for any place. Mm. And and that was my orientation. And after about the first eight to 10 years, it I learned that there were much greater issues at play and it it caused me to double down and and continue to engage and learn and explore 
and really walk away with a deeper understanding of equity and understanding the racialized um, issues that prevent people of color from becoming entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs, um, and all the challenges associated with that. Um, in addition, you know, I grew up in my parents, when we landed here in Arizona in the early 70s, my parents would throw us in a van and travel the state. So I, I really had taken in about 10 Arizona lakes uh, across, and that's why we're local first Arizona and not local first Phoenix. From day one, I was like, no, we are going to be statewide. And so I had a real uh, understanding of the rural areas that I had uh, spent so much time in. In addition, I have family that's been in rural Arizona for a very long time. And so in 2013, Local First Arizona merged with the Arizona Rural Development Council, and we took on the federal designation for the state of Arizona as a rural development council. So that's one differentiator for us is not only are we a coalition of businesses, we are also an economic entity, an economic development entity that is um, working in our, our rural communities. And as you mentioned, our Puerto Local Business Accelerator um, here in Arizona, you know, 42% of our population is Latino. Many of them are Spanish preferred. And so we started a Spanish language business accelerator that's celebrating 10 years this year. And it really is very highly acculturated, developed by the community themselves. It tackles predatory lending and um, helps people build a credit score and better understand the difference between good debt and bad debt. Um, and so, you know, just to give you a sense of how bad these uh, folks are being victimized here in Arizona, uh, the average interest rate our Spanish preferred entrepreneurs are paying when they start our program is 48%. Oh my God. And so uh, we are able to drop that down to 9% and continue to lower that over time. So Spanish, um, Spanish preferred means that they pref that's their first language or that's their language of correct. preference. Correct. Yeah. Some of them are, yeah, some of them are monolingual Spanish. Some of them are bilingual, but they just, you know, they're more it, comfortable. It, conversational English. But if you want to get into the nuts and bolts of running a business, they need to have it taught to them in Spanish. They need to be able to ask questions in Spanish. So all of our instructors, all of it, all the way through is taught in Spanish. So so give me some quick numbers. About how many Latino-owned small businesses would you say have resulted from the interaction and the work through, through Fuerza? And then the same question about rural businesses, just, just to give us an idea. Sure. So um, just I'll throw some numbers at you. So we've graduated over a thousand businesses through our program. Many of those were existing but failing small businesses. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Over 500 of them were new and or newly registered businesses. Um, some of them have just grown. In fact, I'm proud to tell you that we now have six of them who are uh, grossing two million in sales. So wow. that's coming from below the poverty line in a span of six to eight years uh, to grossing two million in sales. They've created over 800 brand new jobs. And so really what we're doing is unlocking capital and giving them the business skills they need to be successful. And boom, you, you've got a success story. In terms of rural, um, during COVID, we really were able to shine. We went to our state governor and um, and said, what is your plan for rural? You know, they talked about how they were going to be helping small businesses. And we walked away with 10 million um, on that first day to distribute to rural small businesses. At the end of the day, we distributed 52 million 
in small business relief aid, um, helping with everything from trouble debt relief to POS systems to HR issues and everything in between. So we have uh, delivered more than 2,400 direct hands-on technical assistance um, businesses. We've delivered technical assistance to more than 2,400 businesses in rural areas. That's incredible. And that um, this will lead to our next question too. That governor that you're referring to, I assume, was Doug Ducey, who was um, yes. who's a Republican. Not he's not the Correct. governor anymore. So, real quick, what's fundamentally different about the sort of services, support, capital, whatever that you need to provide? You've you've said a little bit about uh, for the Latino community. What about rural entrepreneurs? Is there any basic difference, or is it pretty much the same provision of services that you do with urban entrepreneurs? Oh, I think it's very different. I think um, marketing opportunities are different. Establishing a unique place in the market is different. Um, pricing is different. Certainly staffing is different. We have a workforce development um, program um, called the Northern Arizona Good Jobs Network that's working across five Northern Arizona counties, all rural and partnership with three community colleges. Um, that same Republican governor also um, passed a law that our community colleges can now offer four-year degrees. Mm. So we're running at that to try to stem the flow of the brain drain because so many kids, bright young kids, grow up in rural and they have to move to the city to finish their, their college degree. So that coupled with broadband has really um, transformed opportunity. It hasn't transformed the landscape yet, but opportunity. So what we're doing is, is we're convening private sector employers in rural and distilling from them what uh, type of job skills they need and then feeding that backward to the community colleges. Um, so we've had a massive disconnect. And I think this is an un unusual. I don't think this is unique to Arizona. If you ask the community colleges, they will tell you, I think it's it's sort of like right around 90% of them will say they are producing a workforce that's ready to go. If you go to the private sector employers in rural areas and ask them that same question, it's 11%. Mm. So there's a massive disconnect. And, um, and so what we're trying to do is really help the private sector employers identify what they need and trans, you know, translate that into what the community colleges can use to actually turn into curriculum so that we can um, begin to maintain more of our bright young people in our rural communities. You're a doer, and so you're, you're always looking for uh, concrete solutions in the immediate and in the long term. I'm going to ask you first, does the rural-urban divide, as it now stands, affect your work negatively, presumably? And then I want you to shift gears and say, what about either local first or just your experience in cultivating businesses and in using entrepreneurship and small business as a vehicle for revitalization might offer some help in overcoming the divide. So, so tell me again, first of all, where do you see the, the divide hindering what you're doing? And secondly, what about what you've learned could help the rest of us figure out how to overcome the divide? Gosh, um, so it hinders our work in that essentially there's many, many things that we have to do twice, hmm. meaning it is much more difficult for us to just roll out a program, roll out a marketing campaign, roll out anything without saying, but wait, you know, how will that be interpreted, right? Hmm. And I think that the challenge 
it really does go both ways. Uh, uh, and, and we find ourselves, on the one hand, our urban counterparts think of rural as, you know, a staycation. Well, let's go check it out, right? But, they, but, they're, but they're not really interested in understanding the deeper issues, challenges, or how they impact political views. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so th- the challenge from from urban is being somewhat myopic in their view of the world and shallow in their interests. Um, and uh, and and from the from the rural areas, especially in a state like Arizona, we are seven million people, four million in the greater Phoenix area and a million in the Tucson area. Wow. So that leaves 13 rural counties to divide everybody else. Right. right. And, uh, and so the vast majority of the resources and attention go into the bigger cities. In fact, quick statistic, um, you know, the, the, our governmental agency, the Arizona commerce authority will, will brag about all the new jobs created in Arizona. In reality, 85% of those were created in Maricopa County, where Phoenix is, and 5% in Pima County, where Tucson is. So again, that leaves 13 counties to divide, thir- you know, 10% 10% job of the jobs created. created right? yeah, so it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Out, it's outrageous the way it's pitched. So our rural communities are angry. Understandably, they don't get their fair share of the, even a seat at the table half the time, right? Decisions are made on their behalf. So how that impacts us is we constantly have to spend half of our time proving that, okay, yes, we, you know, we have seven statewide offices. Uh, and so, you know, it hinders us in the fact that we have to spend 50% of our time proving our worth um, mm-hmm. because of the, the doubts, just because of my, my personal home address. Um, yeah, so that's, yeah. that's frustrating. Yeah, sure. Okay. So tell me what you've learned in, with a focus on small business and entrepreneurship, what could help the rest of us begin to move beyond the divide? What are we not seeing or what are we not doing enough of that you think would make an impact on it? Well, I think there are just several key issues that we're trying to address that I think could really transform thinking. One of them is with the silver tsunami, uh, that's, you know, the retiring baby boomers is going to impact, I think, rural areas more so than urban areas. Mm -hmm. And that isn't, it, 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 it's something that we are leading the charge here in Arizona and having that conversation because every small business a small town loses means that small town is less livable. Mm. And so I think understanding rural America's point in time and what are the external forces that are putting pressure on them, whether they be technology, i.e., Broadband, broadband and access to resources, whether they be workforce in nature, looking at the vast majority of new jobs being created in urban areas, whether we look at retiring boomers and the small businesses that they run and they can't find buyers. So I think this is a time to innovate and rural America is the most innovative of all of us. They just are. Um, and so I think stopping fighting what's going on in this city and focusing on innovation, which is something they've always done, um, can be transformative. So looking at um, one of the things we're looking at is can those businesses turn into worker-owned cooperatives? And why can't they? And what are the resources that we need to make that happen? Why can't you take a small uh, business of 15 employees in a rural town that's providing a critical service and the owner is past 70, can't find a buyer, 
capitalize and help and train those those employees to own that company in a cooperative manner. There's no reason we can't do this. So I think rural is teed up to innovate, to overcome some of these challenges and stop looking at what the urban areas are doing and focus on the needs of your community. And I, I so agree. And I've I've said before that I think part of what underlies the divide from the perspective of city folks and particularly city elites, academics and others, is their dismal view of rural. They, they think your statement that uh, rural is a source of so much innovation, I agree with completely. That's uh, I, That comes from the necessity is the motherhood of invention. A lot of people are resourceful because they've had to be. But if you ask the average well-educated in the formal sense city person about rural, they think just the opposite. They think it's a wasteland of ideas, of talent, of intellect, of energy. So I think overcoming the divide begins with elevating our view of what's happening in rural and what's possible in rural. So You know, that's one of my projects for the remainder of this year is I want to, we are going to invest in hiring a videographer to highlight 10 innovative businesses in rural and really show what's being made and created in rural to help counter um, that false narrative. Oh, that's excellent. That'll, That'll really be a help. Well, we've just scratched the surface, but that means I'm inviting you back. Um, and I've, it's been delightful to have you. This, again, is Two Worlds, One Country. I'm your host, Anthony Flacavento, and my guest today has been the indomitable Kimber Lanning, uh, the founder and director of Local First Arizona. Kimber, thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you. It's so good to talk to you.